Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Join our hosts as they discuss a wide range of topics and speak with leading cybersecurity, technology, and compliance experts. Now is the time for Secure Talk. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. Secure Talk is brought to you by Adequest, your cybersecurity and compliance partner. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking with Richard Lewis. Richard is a leader in the security space with 21 years of experience and core skills in application level cryptography, threat modeling, and building people focused application security programs. Richard has worked in a variety of roles, including product creator. Uh, and he's worked as a security consultant for several Fortune 100 companies. He's also worked as a security architect and various other roles in the cybersecurity space. Richard's going to be sharing some of his experiences and thoughts related to leading teams and developing secure programs um, or secure development programs for different various organizations. Um, and in addition to all of the work he's done in the security space, Richard actually has done, he believes in giving back to the community. And currently, he serves as the president of Bellevue-based Renewal Food Bank. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. Good morning, Richard. How are you today? Hey, doing good, Mark. How are you doing? Pretty good. I'm uh, happy that I made it in here through the snow. How was your drive? It was great. You know, there's a reason they call it weather. You don't know weather. It was <laughs> right. Um, I saw, I, I, funny, because I, we live up on a hill, and I probably saw 10 different crashes on the way here. And Because some people, they don't have much experience driving in the snow, sure. and they kind of freak out. But yeah. um, you obviously did okay, and, and I did as well. So, hey. Glad to be here. Yeah. Hey, I, I got to say, I was really impressed with the talk you gave at the last ISSA meeting, um, you're you're a talented speaker, and also you're you know you're very knowledgeable on um, application security uh, and application security development or uh, security as part of the development process. But the way that you presented, I thought, was very effective. I mean, you gave a kind of a, a brief overview, and then we did the workshop section. Um, so I, I I like that, and I kind of I wanted to share some of the. I don't know, major themes or lessons learned from that talk on um, on this episode. Is that all right with you? That sounds like great. Excellent. So, I mean, from your perspective, I mean, you, you made some things very clear that, um, you know, when it comes to application security, it's not one person's job. It's not one team's job. It, it's something that should kind of be spread out through an entire organization. Is that an accurate statement? Yes, there are a couple of syndromes we see when dealing with application security in terms of how teams look at them. They see it either as extra work or they see it as outside work. Mm -hmm. When they see it as extra work, it gets relegated in favor of other project activities that need to be done. And so security work does not get done. When it's seen as outside work, it becomes someone's job responsibility to get it done, which right. means if that person is not around, that security work won't happen. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and the, the I guess the great thing about your workshop is you provided several different arenas or situations where a, a team could work together to make it uh, as a shared responsibility, right? And so, but let me back up and, and, and take you through some of the questions that you posed to those different teams. Um, so 
one, where do you begin for application security improvements in any organization? Yeah. Where would you start? So I think uh, it's important to remember the what I like to call as the ABCDs of uh, reaching out to application teams. The first one is A for align. You want to be able to align with the business risks of that organization. Find mm-hmm. out what's relevant to them. If they are a publicly traded company, I encourage application security professionals to read up their 10K statement. Look up the risk factors section in that document. Also, by all means, check out their earnings call transcript. It gives great indicators of what's really hot for the company and where you shouldn't really have a lot of trouble aligning. So that's the A for align. Well, can can you give some specific examples of things that you've seen in some of those those financial statements or the, the annual reports? Yeah, sure. So data is the new oil. Okay. Every company worth its salt that is interacting with data is concerned about the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of data. Mm-hmm. Now, to add to that, the cloud that dimension, right? Mm-hmm. There was a time when people did not want to go on the cloud because of security. Mm-hmm. Today, people have to go on cloud because of security. security, right? Right. So (laughs) clearly, this Mm. is a a trend we are seeing more and more, and Mm -hmm. we are seeing that companies are reflecting that. Take a look at legislation that's coming out, like it's in in the works even as we speak. More and more companies are going to be required, particularly all publicly traded companies are going to be required to call out the cybersecurity experience existing amongst their board of directors. And if they do not have a CISO, a chief information security officer on the board, they have to actually explain why their compensating controls are enough to justify that. I mean, there is clearly a lot of awareness going out there and that is being reflected in those statements. Sure, no, that's that's a really good point. And we, we actually see a lot of organizations, maybe smaller, medium-sized organizations who can't uh, they don't have the, the the resources, or they don't can't justify maybe a full time CISO, but they're bringing in a CISO for hire to just kind of give them some advisory um, uh, support. Yeah, we talk about the virtual CISO role. Right. Um, by the way, my my joke on the CISO is uh, CIO is career is over, and so CISO <laughs> is career is surely over. Right. right? So so clearly uh, there are more CISOs who are reluctant to want to step into dangerous situations. But as long as companies come in with a kind of maturity where they say we are not going to say sky is falling on any single thing and there's a good risk appetite, CISOs will be happy to jump on the bandwagon. Sure, absolutely. Um, so how do you advocate, and you, you mentioned before you met, uh, advocate a people-centric approach to security. What does that mean and how do you advocate it? Absolutely. It can it can sound really cliche. I completely get that when you'd say we talk about people uh, people-centric approach. I think it's important, and this is the epiphany that dawned on me, uh, In the initial part of my career, I used to focus a lot on programs, Mm -hmm. right? Which is how do you get your program to be successful? How do you get your metrics to look really good? How do your KPIs look good in terms of reduced vulnerability count or whatever? But then I soon realized that many of these things matter very little to, to developers, even to the board of directors, you know, at the other end of the spectrum. So in, in a sense, the, the traditional model of application security, where you think of these three pillars of people, process, and technology, is upturned and replaced by a real kind of a model where you have people in the center Mm-hmm. And then you have the spokes of your program, whether that is developer training, whether that is policies, whether that is procedures, whether that is controls, all of these things coming to the periphery. That's interesting. And I'm not sure if this is directly in alignment with that, but 
I know that traditionally you have, you know, a subset of your IT team that would be quote unquote responsible for security, right? And everybody else would be like, well, I don't have to worry about it because those are the people responsible for security. And, you know, they'll tell us what to do. They'll tell us what's dangerous, what we have to look out for. That's kind of a very traditional mindset in my experience. And that same mindset, I mean, you can go into organizations and I'm sure you've been parts of workshops where somebody has said, who in this organization is responsible for revenues? And like the sales guys raise their hand. And who's responsible for expenses? And then, you know, the, the, the CFO team, they'll raise their hands. But in reality, every, everybody's responsible for revenues. Everybody's responsible for quality. Everybody's responsible for, you know, monitoring expenses to some degree, right? And with security, it's kind of the same thing, right? I mean, I'm not on the security team. Maybe I'm a salesperson, but that doesn't mean I can pick up a thumb drive in the parking lot and just throw it in my company machine, right? I think there is the need for security cognizance Mm. and more importantly, the risk appetite that an organization has across all roles and personas within an organization. This extends right from the end user that is using your product, if that is the case, right down to the person that's deploying the product on the other end of the spectrum. So we need to have this awareness through and through, and that is something one has to really focus on. Yeah, well, let me back up even farther then, because when you talk about application, especially if you're developing your own internal apps, um, it you know that whole process starts with developers, right? And so how do you teach developers to write more secure code? I think the first thing is to talk about, the first thing that might help is to talk about what not to do when you are teaching them to write secure code. You are not trying to make them a security expert. Uh, You are clearly trying to rise or raise the security tide, as they say, which lifts up all boats, and that includes developers as well. The second thing that you should do is you should not try a one-size-fits-all training approach when it comes to developers. It clearly has to be based on the application, the data the application processes, and as well as the users that the applications might have and their technical levels that they come in with. So that said, uh, you know, once you have agreed upon what you want to cover in the developer training, you start with, with development of secure software, what it even means. You want to be able to contextualize that. You even start with the concept of pre-mortems. Mm-hmm. Pre-mortems are basically a process where you bring developers in a room and say, what would be the scenarios that would cause the death, if you will, of your application? And what could be done to prevent it? So you're working back from your requirements versus like, you know, just kind of spitballing certain requirements and and going from there. And and finally, the thing that I would say is go with the low hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. Look at where development really needs help by asking them that question. Mm -hmm. Often security professionals are very Uh, uneasy about asking developers that question on where do you need security help? And I think they are your customer. And so we should definitely ask them that first question and give them first dibs at identifying topics that they would consider most useful. Can you give um, some specific examples of low-hanging fruit that you've seen in the past or maybe some potential security issues with that if have been left to their own devices, the developers might not have addressed but you know, through working with the um, you or the other security professionals, or, or just 
organizationally, they would say, oh, you know what, this is something that we need to kind of nip in the bud. Yeah, we have this joke in the industry, right, where we say there are these three types of security recommendations we give developers. The first one is input validation, the second is input validation, and the third <laughs> is input validation. Right. Clearly, input validation is one of those low-hanging fruit that one can look at. And again, depending on the type of input validation, so let's talk in the context of cross-site scripting. Cross-site scripting occurs when, you know, there are different types of cross-site scripting. We have persistent, non-persistent, and so on and so forth. But uh, cross-site scripting occurs when data is not validated before displaying it on a web page in most cases. Mm -hmm. So how do you do proper input validation. Now, this consists of several approaches, right? You need to make sure you use resources such as the Microsoft anti-cross-site scripting library. Within that library, based on the data that you're encoding, so if, if it could be XML, it could be HTML, it could be specific you know, constructs, you want to make sure you use the correct APIs. Just going over some of these basics actually can make a huge impact in the way developers look at the way secure code needs to be written. But then it's easy to miss another aspect, which is sometimes we expect developers to stop doing what they're doing mm -hmm. and then focus on what we think is important. And the we here refers to the security professional, right? That's not happening. I think one of the core aspects that even Gartner has agreed on is that most the security programs that are really successful are the ones that are contextualized within the CI CD pipeline of the DevOps cycle for developers mm -hmm. so that they don't have to leave their ship, so to speak, and, and go somewhere else and then come back to it. Well, how do you do that? Uh, you mean contextualize it? Yes. Contextualizing, I think the first question that one has to do is translating technical risk to business impact. Mm -hmm. Start by asking questions as in what would really spell the doom for your application, as I referenced before, right? Once you've identified what are those specific threats, which is the possibility of something bad happening mm -hmm. and something that has a negative business impact, you come down to what possible weaknesses vulnerabilities or exposures in your application that could cause about doing that. That's where market helps to understand that when we talk of the trichotomy of use cases, mm -hmm. misuse cases, and abuse cases. Use cases are when good users do good things. Right. But misuse cases are when good users do bad things. Mm -hmm. And abuse cases are when bad users do bad things. Mm -hmm. Now, developers ought to be thinking about misuse cases and abuse cases as well. And I think bringing those to the table just gives a great boost in the arm for um, you know application security in general. I think just the, the, the paradigm that you're just talking about, and, and it, it's, maybe it's more of a heuristic a way to look at any kind of project, just because if you're just left in there on your own, you'd say somebody says security is important. Uh, what does that really mean? But if you've got a framework to, to kind of evaluate the importance, the relevance, um, and then a process to address it, I guess that that's that's very, very helpful. Um, you did mention in the talk the other night that, that uh, many security issues that are discovered during the risk assessments uh, remain unfixed even when they go to production. Why is that? I think one of the places where security could do a better job in any company is by being more proactive mm -hmm. rather than reactive. Proactive means you are trying to find things or you are trying to avoid or prevent things before they can be found, uh, right? Or before someone else can find them, worse mm -hmm. still. Uh, clearly, uh, it has, there have been several statistics which says that if you are able to find security issues during the design phase, it is a hundred times cheaper than if you were to find it during your deployment phase. Right. So 
clearly that's the first thing that's kind of the grain of salt, you know, that one needs to kind of keep in mind. It's also going to be much less damaging to your relationships with your customers, to your brand and all that, right? Exactly. More and more companies are using earnings per share Mm -hmm. as a metric to determine what kind of impact security vulnerabilities can have on their top line and bottom line. So yeah, some some of those things are definitely um, kind of um, coming into the picture. The other thing being is this, uh, we in general, in humans, in general, are great at finding things, but poor at fixing things. Mm-hmm. So we like to be, we like to say, hey, this is wrong, that's wrong. But when we are asked what could be the solution to that, it, it takes a lot more effort. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the security community could be more prescriptive uh, to our developer friends and, and provide them guidance, which they can really take, write them back to their workstation versus having to code more or, or look at it more. So for example, when you look at things like uh, SSL, right? Mm-hmm. We, developers are told use SSL, but rarely are developers spoken to about what HSTS is. Ba- basically, that is HTTP strict transport security and different aspects associated with that, and using content security profiles along with HSTS to bolster the security of your application. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly, there are these things that we need to get more prescriptive about, and we need to talk more specifically into those situations. Totally makes sense to me. Um, another another thing that you pointed out is it's really important for a security or risk professional such as yourself to um, have a good match with the organization that they're going to be working with. Um, to, to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, you know, you you clearly we we see this every everywhere around us, right? You wouldn't go to your car mechanic if you are facing a health issue. Right. <laughs> I mean, for the same reasons, you wouldn't you want to make sure that the security professional that you are hiring. And I insinuated this before when I spoke about the legislation that is coming around where right. it requires more people to be security minded. So it's very important that you do uh, that companies take care to do good matchmaking with their security professionals. For example, if you're in the product security space or you're in the product space, you want to make sure that you have security professionals who are technically minded, not just from an audit perspective, but who come in, who have probably done some security development in the past so that they can empathize, if you will, with the product teams and bring them over. On the other hand, there might be scenarios where the organization might not be writing a lot of code. Right. You know, today in today's day and age, modern applications are not developed. They are assembled. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you might need security professionals who have seen how this digital supply chain mm-hmm. has worked together and you want to bring some of those skills to the table. So it's very important that those traditional modes of hiring, uh, you know, be looked at very critically before you decide to bring security professionals on board. How do you evaluate a prospective employer or consulting client in terms of their seriousness? Because I would think that, you know, if you move into a company and then you find out that the the C-level uh, executives, they're just kind of paying lip service to security, but, you know, they've got you in there and now, okay, they've checked that box versus some organizations, they're really taking it seriously, right? I mean, how do you, how do you evaluate that? Yeah, I think there are different uh, sentiment markers that mm-hmm. exist out there. The first thing is to look at what is the company's primary line of business. Who do they interact with? Clearly, in some cases, there are companies that interact with tomes and tomes of data, and clearly security is important for them, and that is a market driver. So that's definitely one checkbox, but that still doesn't answer the question if they are really signed up for security. 
The second thing that I would look at is their compliance footprint. Uh, I like to look at compliance as outside-in security. And outside-in security is, tends to be checkbox kind. Mm -hmm. But inside-out security, like, you know, um, that is something which tends to be more aware kind of change happens. That's where impact happens. So I would definitely look at their compliance footprint as well. The third thing, and I think this is the most important thing, is to look at what are their executives saying during those public, um, you know, uh, those public conversations. Sure. What are they talking about? What are they presenting about? What are the developer community within that organization? Where are their efforts focused on? Well, I'll be frank with you. Sometimes it makes even sense to look at the job positions open at the company, mm. to look at what are the technologies they are dabbling in at the moment, mm. and to see how is it that they keep up to speed with OSS, as open source software, and some of the various uh, security risks that come with it. Sure. All good advice there. Um, you know, it's really important to champion security once you're in an organization. What are some of the best ways that you've seen I think the first way is to ensure that the organization actually needs it, okay. uh, wants it, and won't see it as a, as a tax. Sure. Um, and I think that that is really what the inside-out transformation that I was talking about. You want to make sure you have executive support to begin with. Once the once top brass has discussed and agreed upon what the rules of engagement are at a high level and what needs to be accomplished, it's a lot more easier for that information to cascade down so that others, um, you know, the security team member, the champion, if you will, works with the development team member and makes those conversations happen. So that's definitely number one. The, the second thing that I think is also very, very important is developers need to know what's in it for them. Uh, it's, this, is, this is where selling security is so important. Think of how, how we looked at first responders in the past versus today. Earlier, first responders would look at their CCTV footage and would find out what's going on out there, and that's how they would react and interact with the community. Today? They are at our fairs and festivals and they right. give out coloring books and stickers <laughs> to our kids and stuff like that. There is a need for collaboration. So it's very important for the security champion to have the means and the ability and well, even the determination to follow mm -hmm. his or her developer customer, if you will, right. and make sure that impact is being caused about. That's more excellent advice. Um, you, you also mentioned that some engagement models are doomed to fail. What, what are the, the, the most obvious ones? I think the most obvious one is the cross-charge model. Okay. The cross-charge model happens in this way. This is where two execs decide and say, hey, the security exec says, I'm going to sell you 500 of my consulting hours to your team. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the problem with that, Mark. As soon as you are asking your developer to pay for your time, you give him or her the right to say no to that time as well. And so that is a model that does not really work very well. The second model that works is a pure play compliance model. I like to give this example of an egg and a chick coming out of an egg. You break that egg from the outside and the chick dies. The, you break the, the same chick breaks the egg from the inside and it lives. And that outside in is how compliance looks like. If all you're going to look at is compliance, then it's like rubber stamping and that's really not going to work. 
Instead, there has to be a genuine transformation from the inside out to want to make more secure software. So that's the second model uh, that does not work. And I think the third model is what I like to call the ad hoc model, where, where really all that companies trying to do is, given the needs for what customers are asking and so on and so forth, they want to check that box out there and just reassure their customers that they want security. But really, inside the company, there is no genuine interest in pursuing that. Yeah, I um, spent a few years working in the financial services industry, and you know that, that's a highly regulated industry. And I worked in one organization where we viewed compliance as almost the enemy, you know. And oh God, here they come. The second organization, they made it very clear the value that the compliance team was bringing to the table. They're basically helping us protect ourselves, protect our clients. And, and we could actually, you know, in the right context, market that, the fact that we are compliant um, and that we're doing our best to meet those standards. But it's a totally different mindset, right? And um, so, I, I mean, I've seen that firsthand. Um, I, I hear a lot about gamification, and you did mention that security can, uh, can be gamified. I got to be honest, I'm a little bit skeptical, but go ahead and, and, and push back on me. How, can, how, how have you seen that security has been gamified effectively? Sure. And, and I think you bring up a good point about being skeptical. Uh, I think the first and second order principle is super important here. Here's what I mean by that. You don't gamify security when, you're, when you have not already thought about what is it that you're planning to gamify. Right. So you have to decide the what uh, before the how. Okay. Uh, having done that, so let's let's take a specific example, right? Usually, the threat modeling exercise is considered to be one of the most uh, return on investment kind of causing activities in any organization. So here are some examples on how you can gamify that. You could organize things like um, a hackathon, a hackathon where company professionals come together or developers come together and outside of that particular team as well come together to try find out issues in the application kind of a capture the flag if you will sure, sure. or even something of of that ilk something else that can be done which i like to do a lot is uh, we call it a designathon a designathon is basically a closed door team event where i sit down with the team and we don't leave the room until we have looked at the application so defined it until we have modeled it from a threat modeling perspective, which is identifying all of the spoofing, tampering, repudiation, information disclosure, denial of service, and elevation of privilege threats, and also come out with a response to how those specific threats will be addressed. In addition to that, there are softer gamification models that can be used. For example, teams that show more maturity in dealing with security can be given more amnesty can be given more of a kind of a white glove treatment mm -hmm. in terms of, hey, you know, we trust you more than we would trust another team that is not willing to button up on specific security controls. So yeah, there is clearly you can kind of boil the ocean when it comes to gamification, but it has to be part of the culture of an organization. You know, someone has said culture can eat your strategy for lunch, right. but then Forbes said, well, in that case, culture and strategy should go out for lunch more often. Right? <laughs> so you that. need yeah. to have that thing as well. That's great. And, and okay, so I'm not as skeptical as I was just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, and I, I actually, I, just, just listening to you kind of walk me through that, I can see too, just sometimes, whether you it's a hackathon, a designathon, just the, the change of scenery, the change of context, and putting people and say, okay, you know, we're not going to go day to day to day. We're just going to focus for a certain time on this 
would bring out or highlight or allow you to discover potential issues or solutions. And it's and it's just kind of like um, just creating a, a fresh environment, you know, and, and, and allowing people to kind of look at things a little bit differently. Um, but no, that's, that's all uh, really good feedback there. Um, let me just ask a couple more questions here. I think it's really important. Sometimes, you know, an individual or a team will want to take credit for a specific program. Doesn't matter what that program is, but it could include security, for example. And look how secure we are. We get the badge. We get the rec uh, the uh, recognition, etc. But I think you made a point that it's important to make your stakeholders look good, right? And uh, not take all the credit for yourself. How do you do that? Yes. So I think the first important thing to do is recognize who your stakeholders are which is why stakeholder mapping is a very important activity when you launch your security program. Mm -hmm. We talk about this uh, two axes, the first axis being the, being the axis of influence and the other axis being the axis of interest. And you want to be able to map your stakeholders across the four quadrants of those axes. This means that there are some stakeholders who have a lot of influence in the organization, but who may not be super interested or they might be very interested. Conversely, there might be stakeholders who might be very, very interested in your program, but might not have a lot of influence. It's important that when you are determining how to make your stakeholders look good, you are cognizant of this particular graph, if you will. Having done that, I think it's important to also remember that ultimately, when the team stands up and says, we used or we adopted such and such security initiatives, such and such security activities in our day-to-day -day development. And this is the return on investment we got back. And the return on investment can be in terms of how many potential bugs we discovered and what it would have been like had they not been discovered, how performance was improved. Believe it or not, sometimes security has got very interesting touch points with performance as well. Um, and, and then just bringing some of those things to the table can make a huge impact. To give you some anec an anecdote, uh, recently I helped a team threat model their application. This was a very important component within that application. It was going to be a launcher for other applications. So if there was anything wrong with that launcher, it could potentially affect other apps as well. Um, Having been a, a little uh, you know, hesitant to begin with, the team quickly rose to the occasion and I actually rolled up sleeves, so to speak, worked with them to build a threat model to go the entire nine yards and work with them and make it happen. Now, what that meant was that that same team had an opportunity to talk about the work that they were able to do in security to the rest of the colleagues right. across different units within the business. And that really make, made them look good and I'm sure those stakeholders who are listening to these conversations are going back saying, yeah, we want to do more of that. How do we operationalize some of that? So I think that is a much, much better way of looking at things. You know, I like to say you don't make friends in the emergency room, mm -hmm. right? You make friends in the playground right. and you want to create this playground for your stakeholders where stakeholders know that you are not just in it to find out how many bugs or how many vulnerabilities or kind of calling somebody's baby ugly, as people call it. <laughs> but this is more about how do you improve and take a more risk-centric approach to application security. Now that, that's great um, and the advocacy that comes from a second party or third party is much more oftentimes much more credible than when it comes from yourself or from your own organization so you know if you create uh, fans in the organization that are going out there and, and, and saying good things about you that's always going to be a good thing. Uh, what I mean what do you do 
or where do you look to stay up to date um, and keep informed, you know, in, in for your for your role? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, not done properly, uh, you can clearly just become an information holder. Yes. Uh, so you want to make sure you are judicious on how you use your time. I think it's important for uh, security professionals to identify thought leaders within their industry. So there are always some people who kind of lead the charge, if you will, for where that particular field of information security is going. So you start out with them, follow them. What are they, where are they presenting at? Look at their Twitter accounts. Uh, what are they talking about? What news articles they are sharing? That's a very good place to start with. Uh, the second thing I would say is look for papers that are released and that have a cadence of, uh, you know, a, a business cadence associated with it. For example, Verizon's data breach investigation report was released day before yesterday. Mm -hmm. That report itself is worth its weight in gold because it gives such a great um, a curated way to look at the data breach incidents that happened in 2018. And it allows you to make a data-centric decision or statement mm -hmm. to your application teams versus like, you know, just being out there where more of art and less of science. So that's definitely the second thing. The third thing I would say is uh, training programs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Pluralsight is a great resource uh, that I like to go to to update myself on um, information security and, and look at kind of what's going on. Again, following the people who, who present there on those topics. And finally, something which is very simple, you could put in a Google News alert for mm -hmm. any particular trends in the industry that you're watching. You can you know, sign up for those alerts and that will kind of give you a great way to stay up to speed. But I think what's important in all of this is consistency. You start out small getting information and once you develop an appetite for consuming that information around you, you go bigger. It's like climbing a mountain, right? Mm -hmm. you, it's, it's always going to be the summit that's going to be the hardest part. And so you want to make sure that when you're collecting this information, you don't go like overzealous information overload more trying to collect all information and then that really leaves you nowhere that's interesting and I, I think a lot of people are guilty myself included of headline surfing and and you know you will go very superficial into oh did you hear about the cafe breach or did you hear about company B breach or company C breach um, but I think the, the real learning lessons are uh, when you dig into and understand how did the breach happen, how did they respond effectively or ineffectively, and what are the lessons learned there? Can we share those lessons in our organization? Do you actively like do that in your in your role? Do you say, hey, you know, here's an example of something that worked really well, or here's something that we want to be careful of or be aware of? I think the human brain remembers things very well only if they are connected. Okay. And so whenever you're getting information, it's important to connect it with what you already know. Mm -hmm. So you're making a very important point here. And this is what I try to do most of the times. I mean, sometimes I'm guilty of headline surfing mm -hmm. as well. But here's what I try, I try to find in this case. The human connection, the human mm -hmm. factor. What really caused that issue? Right? Whether it's two years ago, Amazon's AWS servers going down for extended period of time because someone fat-fingered the number of servers that needed to go down. Whether it was Facebook's vulnerability from last year where Guy Rawson, the chief technical uh, officer at Facebook, said that there, it was a perfect storm of uh, three application security vulnerabilities coming together, mm -hmm. or whether it is something you see more recently of things happening, data breaches happening, and what really caused it. I think it is very important to look at the human element because 
for technology, I mean, you know, you can always Google for technology, you can always Bing for technology, right? But what about the human factor? Who's going to look at those permutations and combinations where humans go wrong? So as Tom Hanks said it, right, in the movie Sully, let's make this human, right? right? Let's look for, let's take our artifacts, let's take our programs, let's take our processes, take all the things that we are, you know, those shiny things that we want to pitch before development teams and make it human. Let it look like we are dealing with humans versus telling computers what they ought to do. I do believe that developers are very intelligent. That's why they are developers. And they know what is to be done. Mm -hmm. All that we as security professionals come in is shine the light on what they would also consider. And if it is something worth their time and something which they see value for, I believe generally they will have no trouble uh, adopting that. It totally makes sense. Um, last couple of questions for other security professionals who are listening in or aspiring security professionals. What publications, organizations, and uh, events and credentials? I'm going to throw them all in there. Um, do you think are most relevant right now? Sure. So I think uh, from a website and resources perspective, the the de facto is OWASP. Okay. Uh, the Open Web Application Security Project, and specifically because OWASP can feel like an ocean. Mm -hmm. So I, I would recommend you start out with the cheat sheet section. Uh, OWASPs have excellent cheat sheets on different technologies. They act as ready reckoners uh, for you to be able to look at a technology and go deep dive into it and find out what the, what the security touch points are. Uh, that's definitely the first one. The second thing that I would say is invest in yourself. I did mention Pluralsight previously, but uh, you know the Pluralsight subscription for a year might set you back by a few hundred bucks. And I think it's worth its weight in gold simply for the amount of information they churn out. And the information is so distilled mm -hmm. that uh, you, know, you cannot reduce it further. So right. it's really good information that you can get right off the bat. In terms of events, um, I recently joined the ISA. So, I mean, I, I presented there and Dan was gracious in inviting me over to present. And I think uh, joining organizations like that uh, would be a great plus point. I would also say look out for industry focus groups, depending on what industry you are in. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you don't want to be like super concentrated only attending security conferences and so on and so forth, because after a while, you know, you can easily get a little discouraged by what you see around you. Right. But you also want to look at the, the innovation happening in your field, uh, in the industry that you might be in. And so joining and being part of those industry focus groups is a great point, uh, is a great way to move forward. Okay. And uh, what about credentials? Is that important? Uh, you know, you, you caught me there. So I am not <laughs> I'm not so much of a credential person. Okay. Um, I, I'd rather look at experience and the breadth of knowledge and the times that not only have you failed in previous projects, but the ones that you have kind of done a Phoenix Act right sure. on, on those projects. Uh, and that, I think, is uh, something very, very important. So I would go for breadth versus depth. That said, I'm not knocking on those who want to do, you know, who want to take up credentials, whether they want to do the CISSP. If you think that that is the way you can get those rocket boosters to your career, I mean, you should definitely do it and go for it. Well, you've shared a lot of valuable um, advice, information, and, and experience with us. I want to just, if, right at the end here, um, change it up a bit more. I know that you're involved in a, uh, a local nonprofit organization. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Sure. This is the Renewal Food Bank. Uh, it's an organization based in Bellevue, in fact, just a couple of miles from the AdaQuest office. 
And uh, it is such a privilege, Mark, uh, to serve in this organization. And, and I know, you know, usually when we think of nonprofits, the first thing that comes to mind, okay, I'm pretty sure they'll need some money or stuff like that. But this organization is different. Um, when I was asked to join this organization, and I have the privilege of serving as the president of the board, uh, I was told that you are coming in for your experience and the perspective that you're willing to bring in. And because diversity is so important to the Renewal Food Bank, we actually took one of our clients, meaning a, one of our per, patrons who would come to take services from the food bank and brought him in the board to get his perspective on how the board could do a better job at serving our community. So to all those listening, this is an open invitation. If you think that you want to serve your communities more specifically in the east side, the Bellevue area, then the Renewal Food Bank, you can check, it out, you can check us out online. Um, it would be a great place to come in. We are one of the few food banks in this area where we do not check for income proof from our clients, um, number one. And number two, there we have what, what we call as a client choice pantry. means you actually come in as if you were shopping at a grocery store. You're given a, given a shopping cart, and based on your family size, you can pick as many things as you want from our shelves. So this is, some, this is really amazing, and it's amazing to see how the different churches and the businesses in the area have risen to the occasion to supply uh, what is needed here. Sounds like an amazing program, and I really like the approach where, I mean, you don't want to go stand on a corner in line someplace and have a handout, right? I mean, anybody's not going to feel, anybody in need is not going to feel good about that kind of experience. But making people just feel like, hey, you know, we're here, it's cash, we're not going to check on anything, take what you need and go, that is amazing. One question about that, though, I mean, I, I live on the east side as well, and I think that a lot of people would be surprised that there are people out there in need and you know explain a little bit about that sure the city of bellevue for example every city does it but the city of bellevue in particular comes out with a yearly assessment called the needs assessment mm -hmm. this is something where they charter an external consultant to look at the community that serves bellevue that consists of bellevue and find out what are the needs and no prizes for guessing the number one need out there is food you might be surprised to know, Mark, that last year the American Pediatric Association added a new question that are asked of parents during their children's, during their child's annual checkup. And the question is this, is your child hungry? Wow. Um, very sobering. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, the, just the, the hunger pangs that one gets, um, and, and it's just heartbreaking to hear this from people who go through that. They have told me that those hunger pangs are the worst possible emotion that you can ever go through. Mm. It's easy not to have a house above your uh, head, no matter how horrible and terrible mm. that sounds, but going hungry and not knowing where your next meal comes from. And so um, our director, Rich Bowen, does an amazing job that we have a few people who are um, you know, handicapped and not able to go out there. So we even do a delivery service. We take it to their houses. We know them on one-on-one -on -one basis sure. and be able to do that. It is just uh, a fantastic place uh, where uh, lots of change is happening. To imagine that we feed more than uh, 250 families every week um, and, and comes to almost uh, 37 to 40,000 pounds of food every year. Um, it's just very, very, um, it, it's something which is sobering and reminds me and my kids and my, my wife as well how thankful we need to be to God to just have that food on the table and know where our next meal is coming from. Absolutely. Sounds like an amazing program. Say the name of the program one more time, please. It's Renewal Food Bank. 
Thank you for that. Well, hey, Richard, I really enjoyed you um, coming on Secure Talk here today. Uh, as usual, I learned a lot from you and um, appreciate your time and hope to see you again soon. Yeah, Mark, thank you very much for having me. This was great. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Join our hosts as they discuss a wide range of topics and speak with leading cybersecurity, technology, and compliance experts. Now is the time for Secure Talk.